Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Matchroom Radio with David Diamante. Today, we are in the city so nice. They named it twice, New York, New York. And it's very exciting because we are in my new bar. Uh, it's called Diamante's right here on 8th Avenue, right at the corner of the Joe Louis Plaza, 8th and 31st, where Madison Square Garden is. And I have a wonderful guest with me today. He's a Hall of Famer. And if you don't know this gentleman, you really need to know him. I believe he's one of the most important writers for our sport uh, of our generation. Uh, Mr. Thomas Hauser, he is a Hall of Famer, and he has written roughly 50 books from Beethoven to Chernobyl uh, to boxing. And so, Thomas, it is lovely to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you. Nice to be in Diamantes. So let's talk about you for a second. First of all, you're from New York. You're you're a native New Yorker. Uh, You've seen so much in the sport. And you got into the first book that you wrote. I want to talk about Charles Foreman and the execution of Charles Foreman just for a second, because that book really went on to do a lot of things. And and they re-released it as Missing, obviously, the movie. But how did you get interested? I've traveled to Chile and I spent time at Viña del Mar. Um, where Charles Horman, you know, was when a lot of this stuff went down. What interested you in that story? I was working as a lawyer on Wall Street. Uh, graduated from Columbia Law School, clerked for a federal judge, spent five years on Wall Street with a firm called Crevasse, Swain, and Moore. And while I was there, I became friendly with a woman named Terry Simon, who was in Chile with Charles Horman and his wife when Charles was killed. Wow. in the aftermath of the coup. And Charles's father was very unhappy with the performance of the United States Department of State during that time. He was beginning to have suspicions that there might have been U.S. involvement in his son's death. And while at Cravath, I had done some pro bono work on behalf of Arthur and Doris Krauss the parents of Alison Krauss, who was one of the students who was killed at Kent State University. And I also worked briefly on litigation against the Mississippi State Highway Patrol for the killings at Jackson State College in Mississippi. So I was familiar with litigation uh, against the government for wrongdoing involving civilian deaths. Ed asked if I would meet with Charles's parents, Ed and Elizabeth, uh, which I did to discuss their options. That was, I believe, back in 1973. Then four years later, I decided to leave Cravath and write. Uh, I was getting bored with the law. Writing seemed like a nice lifestyle, a nice way to reach out and affect change. The story of Charles Horman seemed to me to to present important political issues and also a compelling personal drama. So I got back in touch with Ed and Elizabeth, asked if they would cooperate with me if I wrote the book. They said yes, and things went from there. Did you ever get to go down to Chile? I never went to Chile. Uh, When I was working on the book itself, Chile was under the heel of a brutal fascist regime, and I don't use the word fascist lightly, and it would have been exceedingly dangerous for me to go down there given the pursuit I was working on. So I interviewed dozens of people who had been in Chile at the time of the coup, everybody from people in the United States military group and uh, 
or diplomatic corps to uh, to young men and women who had been imprisoned in the national stadium. It uh, it was quite a journey, but I did not go to Chile. Obviously, they made the movie Missing with Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. Um, what was that like to have your book adapted to a movie of that magnitude with 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 actors of yeah. of that magnitude? For, for first, I was under the foolish impression, oh, this is this is easy. I mean, you <laughs> you write a book, it's yeah. a good book. They make it into a feature film. You make a gazillion dollars. Everybody reads it. Little did I know, it's like a fighter who wins his first pro fight and says, oh, well, this is easy. You keep winning, and then you win a world championship. No, that doesn't work like that. Writing is uh, a very rough sport. You don't take punches, but it, it, it can be tough from a financial point of view. It's a financial mosaic. But it was a thrill. Uh, one of the nice things about having the movie made, the, maybe the nicest thing, was that it magnified exponentially attention to, to the, the book issue. itself. When the, oh, right. when the book sure. came out, the execution of Charles Foreman in hardcover, it sold maybe 5,000 copies. Once the movie was made, it sold 250,000 copies in 18 different languages around Absolutely. the world. It's a whole different audience for it. So it, it gave added uh, exposure to the message, which was very important. And uh, financially, obviously, it w was quite beneficial. But missing came to be very important. Once the movie came out, it had a significant impact on how people in the United States viewed the Pinochet regime in Chile. And many people who are conversant in these areas say the movie actually was a factor in the ultimate decline of the Pinochet regime and the restoration of democracy in Chile because of the effect that the movie had on public opinion in the United States. This is one of the reasons why uh, I love you as a writer, because for many people out there, if you're not familiar with Thomas Hauser, he is one of, again, I'll say it as said at the beginning, but you're one of the most important boxing writers of our generation. I feel like you have changed the sport because you're one of the few people that, you know, obviously you went to Columbia Law, you have a law degree, so you can defend yourselves again. Yeah. You can defend yourself against lawsuits, and you know I'm just going to say it. You got a set of balls. You got a set of balls. You know you don't have a problem going up against an establishment if you see that there's an issue. And and people have attacked you over the years. Oh, he's in this guy's pocket. This guy's pocket. Uh, you know, for me personally, uh, I've known you for quite a long time. I don't feel that that's the truth. I feel that you don't like injustices, and that's one thing that I respect very much about you. You know, Lennox Lewis once said, uh, if you want to, I'm going to, some quote, like, if you want to know about boxing in a hundred years, you know, what it was like back now, read Thomas Hauser. And I think that's absolutely true because you, you do so many different articles. Obviously you write a lot of nonfiction too, but I mean, you write a lot of fiction, but you write a lot of nonfiction about the sport and including, of course, uh, Muhammad Ali, his life and times, which is known as really the but the pinnacle of Muhammad Ali, you know, biography. How did you get into boxing? And I want to talk about Ali for a bit, how you met Ali, but how did you first get into boxing? Where did your love of boxing come from? I got into boxing by chance. In 1983, 
I had finished writing a murder mystery keyed to Beethoven's music, and I wanted to write a sports book. Uh, growing up, my favorite sports were baseball, football, and basketball. In that order, I was a casual boxing fan. But you can't just walk into Yankee Stadium and talk to the Yankees. You can't just walk into Madison Square Garden and talk to the Knicks. You can walk into any gym in any city in the country and talk to the fighters who are training there. So I wrote a book about the sport and business of boxing called The Black Lights, uh, which came out in 1985. It's a must-read, by the way, everyone. Must read. Then I, I went on to other subjects, uh, wrote a book about Chernobyl, another murder mystery. Uh, and in 1988, I was approached by Muhammad and his wife, Lonnie, who asked if I would be interested in writing what we all hoped would become the Definitive Alley biography. And initially, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. Uh, I was a huge Alley fan when I was young. But by that point in time, he was having physical difficulties. Uh, there were days when he was good. There were days when the light seemed all but gone from his eyes. And I didn't want to work on a project that was going to depress me for a year and a half, two years. And Lonnie said to me, look, why don't you come out to the farm? They lived on a farm in Berrien Springs, Michigan at the time. You know, spend four or five days with us and we'll see how it all goes. And I figured, okay, worst thing that can happen here is I'll go spend four or five days at home with Muhammad Ali. And the first night I was there, I found it hard to make eye contact with Muhammad. Uh, you know, it, other than John Kennedy, who was my boyhood hero, I don't know you, that you could have sat me down opposite somebody who would have shaken me up as much. I wasn't sure what he processed, what he didn't. And then in the morning I woke up, I went down to the kitchen and Muhammad was already there. And he looked at me and he said, do you want cornflakes or granola? And I said to myself, Tom, relax, <laughs> just lighten up. You know, just treat him like Muhammad. You know, just talk with him. You know, you're a guest in his home. And from that point on, it was a joy. I will never have, haven't had, never will have a professional project that brings me as much joy as that one did. I had a room in the house. I'd go out there for a week at a time. Uh, he'd be in my apartment when he was in New York, uh, and one time I remember he was at my apartment, he was tired, he went into my bedroom to take a nap, so now I can go into my bedroom, point to the bed, and say Muhammad Ali slept there. Uh, but it, it, it was a wonderful experience, and, and one that I'll always carry with me. When that was over, I wrote occasional boxing articles. Then in 1999, the Internet started to become a force. And I got a very good contract with uh, what was then an important website called Seconds Out to chronicle the contemporary boxing scene. And I've been doing that now for more than two decades for various websites. And when I look over the scope of my boxing writing, there's The Blind Lights, which started at The Alley Biography. I've written two novels about boxing, Mark Twain Remembers and Waiting for Carver Boyd. I, I enjoyed both books immensely, especially the Mark Twain one. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it might be that the, my greatest contribution are these articles that for 20 years plus I've been chronicling the contemporary boxing scene, and that's everything from serious investigative reporting 
on performance-enhancing drugs and, and malfeasance at state athletic commissions to the fights themselves. I've been privileged in that I've carved out a niche whereby fighters invite me into the dressing room in the hours before and after a fight. And that's an extraordinary time because the fighter's whole future is on the line, not only his financial well-being, but his actual physical health. And I frequently ask myself, what would it mean for history if somebody had been in Joe Lewis's dressing room, writing down everything that happened before and after he fought Max Schmeling, or Ali's dressing room before and after he fought George Foreman? And I've been privileged to do that with fighters like Evander Holyfield, Roy Jones, Manny Pacquiao, Canelo Alvarez. I mean, dozens and dozens of fighters. And I actually, I took recently 35 of those dressing room reports and put them together in one book that was just published called Inner Sanctum. In the Inner Sanctum. Yep. And it's, it's, it's a privilege that I never take for granted. But the sum total of these articles chronicling the contemporary boxing scene, to my way of thinking, might be my, my best writing achievement in boxing, although I am very proud of the Alley book. I love the two novels, and, and the Black Light started it all for me. Well, <clears throat> as a boxing fan... I, I've even written about David Diamante, I might add. Uh, you have. From yeah. a, a long profile when we first met to uh, shorter pieces about your running with the bulls in Pamplona and making pizza. Yeah, we did the making pizza, yeah. I used to be a pizza maker for years, and Thomas put me to the task... <laughs> I was uh, with, and you made good pizza. It was great pizza. It was really good. Yeah. That was that was great. Yeah, that was great. And your mom, rest in peace. She was there. Yeah. And uh, Harold Letterman, rest in peace. He was there. Of course, Paulie Malnagi, and right. I think we had George from the New York State Athletic Commission, George Ward. George Ward. That was great. And of course, yeah. Anthony Catanzaro hosted it. It was his pizzeria, his Portobello's. Pizza. Yeah, did it. That was great, man. Yeah. We had we had some great times. I mean, we met. We were just talking about that when we met because I couldn't remember. I know. We met in New York City many years ago at a fight, but the first time we really sat down, you asked me to do an interview, and we sat down on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, and that was, you said, what, 2003? It was well, right I, before Gaddy Ward. the night before Ward Gaddy 3. Right. Uh, I had been at a show, I, I guess it was at the Manhattan Center, Hammerstein Ballroom, something of that, one of those. Uh, and I was in a dressing room, I think with Vinnie Matalone, actually. Oh, man, I'm not Vinnie. That's my guy. And I was walking downstairs from the dressing room to the ring, and I heard this wonderful stentorian voice announcing whatever next fight it was. And I said, wow, that, that, that is a voice, and whoever it is, he uses it well. And then I went down and I saw this apparition in the ring <laughs> and said, you know, the, this, this is a very interesting guy. You know, the, the whole, your talent, the way you used it, the way you, you present yourself. And I said, it'd be fun to do a, an interview with you. And then we had that, I remember it well, a long sit down, at least two hours. Yeah, we sat, we were on the beautiful, boardwalk. Beautiful evening, sitting on the boardwalk, you know, just talking. And it was great. And that's where our friendship started. Mickey Ward and, uh, and, and Charlene was his girlfriend. Okay. Right. Came by and said hi to us. Yeah. Before the Gaddy Ward 3 fight. That was yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. 
And I, I remember, yeah, I'm thinking Mickey's fighting the next night, and here we are just chatting with him, you know, casually yeah. on the boardwalk. Yeah, the great times, great times. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've both seen a lot of times in boxing. Um, we both have a deep love for the sport. How have you seen the scene change over the years, for, for good or bad? I've been disappointed with boxing in recent years, very disappointed. Uh, and what could be, and what in boxing do better? Okay, there, 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 there are a number of fundamental problems with boxing. The first is there are too many champions. We're getting excited now about football. We've seen some great playoffs, the Super Bowl's coming up. There is going to be one Super Bowl champion. Uh, boxing has four world champions in most weight divisions. People don't know who the champions are. I mean, there was a time when everybody knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was. My mother could have told you, and it didn't have to be Joe Lewis or Rocky Marciano. It could have been James Braddock or Ingemar Johansson. People knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was. Now, if we go across the street from Diamantes and ask 50 people who's the heavyweight champion of the world, maybe we'll find two who say, well, Tyson Fury holds these belts and Alexander Usyk holds those belts. The answer you're most likely going to get is, well, I don't think it's like Tyson anymore. I mean, people don't know who the champions are. There's also an economic model that cuts boxing off from its fans for its flagship events. Most things of, of merit are behind one sort of paywall or another. And then the best don't fight the best. And it's infuriating. How can we in the Super Bowl? Kansas City is going to play Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia didn't say, well, we'd rather play the New York Jets in the Super Bowl. The best play the best. You have a real champion. Is there a way that this can change? I don't know because the promoters don't want it to happen and the networks don't care about it happening. Everybody is in it for the short-term score and their own self-interest. There's no sense of the larger good which you have in other sports. Nobody is looking out for the common welfare of the sport. Certainly nobody's looking out for the fans. And uh, it, it's a shame. The last time boxing really functioned well as a sport was in the glory days of HBO, when you had the best fighting the best in fights that mattered. And that doesn't happen anymore. Rarely. Oh, you have a handful of fights each year that people anticipate. We've been waiting for five years for Terrence Crawford versus Errol Spence. And instead we get them fighting old past their prime fighters or fighters who never were. You see it again and again and again. People talk about what fights they want to make and then they don't make them. I do want to say this. I, I do want to say, I, I think in quite a lot of ways you're, you're right, which is a shame. Um, sometimes boxing doesn't do itself any favors. However, I've been seeing a trend lately of, of undisputed. You know, we have two undisputed fights. I think the women's ranks have been really doing that lately. Obviously, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano, the best fighting the best. 
and you have two undisputed fights uh, at the Garden this Saturday before uh, Serrano and Cruz. Uh, so, and you know we've we've been seeing more undisputed champions, Canelo, well, and I'll 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 take issue with that because first, uh, undisputed is about belts and. Many of the belts are phony. Let's start with women's boxing, which you mentioned. Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano was a great fight. It was a great night, not for women's boxing, for Bob, boxing. Agreed. The atmosphere was electric. You had two skilled fighters in a very, very good fight. Wonderful night for boxing. But if you look at William, women's boxing, John Shepard, uh, who runs BoxRec.com, which is boxing's one indispensable website, ran some numbers recently. I, I asked him to specifically uh, in advance of this fight. Uh, there are 1,900 licensed women's boxers in the world today. The sanctioning bodies have created more than 1,400 different championships which means that you know, every single fight could be for a championship, assuming you're willing to pay the sanctioning fee. That's demeaning to the sport. Championships, particularly with the women, also with the men in some instances, are given out like trinkets in gumball machines. And very often all undisputed is, is it's an excuse for a, lim a, a very good fighter to fight a limited opponent who happens to have a belt. I want to see good fights. I don't care what belts Errol Spence and Terence Crawford fight for. I want to see them fight each other. You know, you're not seeing the best fighting the best. Many of the belts are meaningless, undisputed. Has, I mean, look, I, I think Terence Crawford is a wonderful, wonderful fighter uh might still be pound for pound the best fighter in the world but if you look at his run to become undisputed his signature win was against julius and dongo lost lost what his last four fights something like that i mean it's the belts are killing the sport i would really like to see boxing and, I, and I, I've, I've tried on occasion to nudge the sport in that direction and the vested interests push back I'd like to see a credible ranking process that lists fighters one, two, three, four, five in each weight division through ten. You know, you watch college football in the fall, and if number three is playing number five, you get excited about it. You know, I'd much rather have somebody say this fight is a, a legitimate rankings panel, not some corrupt sanctioning organization. A legitimate rankings panel has ranked the heavyweights. And this fight is between the number two and the number five heavyweight in the world. You know, people can get into that. Good fights between good fighters. Don't tell me it's for a meaningless belt that nobody except the fighter and the promoter and maybe the TV network care about. It is killing the sport. Fans aren't seeing the fights they want to see. And also, let me just throw one since I'm sure. in a roll now. You know, <laughs> you, you can sell people a shirt that's ugly. You can sell people perfume that smells bad if you market it all properly.
The one thing you can't do is fool people into thinking they're being entertained when they're not. And too many fight cards and fights now aren't entertaining. We hear again and again and again, oh, we're giving you a massive undercard. This is stacked. It's huge. And then you get a couple of fights between guys or, or gals, you know, who are 12 and 0 against somebody who's, you know, 10 and 9, and it's a mismatch. And, you know, you go to the fights for the most part, and, you know, there are what, five fights at Madison Square Garden uh, coming up this Saturday nine. night? Nine. 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 I meant nine. I'm sorry. Uh, that's what happens when there's a siren going by and you can't think. We're in New York. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I could certainly pick eight out of nine winners right now. Maybe there'll be an upset. Uh, and that's not just a knock on this card. That's across the board. Now, some people, you know, put on good fights. Some cards have a few toss-up fights. I, I would much rather see two guys who are 10 and 8 fight each other in a barn burner than one guy who's 17 and 0 fighting somebody who's... Uh, yeah, an upside-down record. Look, could have a chance. Look, you and I are both fight fans. We like good fights. I want to be entertained by yeah, fights. And, I mean, we, we recently went to a fight together, and we watched two just kind of young ham and eggers whatever and but they tore it up yeah and we enjoyed that fight yeah that was a larry goldberg show with yeah. tony hall fun. has another one coming up february 23rd yeah. i think and unfortunately and this is another thing that really hurts boxing one of those fights was marred by the fact that the 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 there was a house fighter who sold a lot of tickets who clearly lost and the judges gave him the decision I think because he was the house fighter, you know, because he was the ticket seller. And I know that was upsetting to you, was upsetting to me. You know, when a guy or gal gets in the ring and fights his or her heart out and is bleeding and wins the fight, don't steal it from them because the other person sells more tickets. That's not what a judge is supposed to do. In every other sport, the officials are presumed to be unbiased. They might make mistakes, you know, well, they have video review to try to correct that. In boxing, the referee, the judges, in some instances, are presumed to be biased. Most people on the inside know who the good, honest, competent referees and judges are, and most people know who the ones who can be breached are, and there's no serious effort to fix it. Well, I'll say this, I appreciate your words. I don't agree with everything, but um, you don't have to. But I appreciate what you said, and and I feel that it does at least come from the right place. You care very much about the sport, um, and and I appreciate your work for the sport. Um, we do have some um, questions from some fans. Would you be willing to? Be happy to. All right, let's see what these are. Okay, let's see what we got here. Um, okay. Julian Haynes asks, how many of your books have gone on to make it to the big screen or be based around a film? Okay. Uh, two of my books were made into feature films. There was Missing uh, that was made into a film directed by Costa Gavras starring uh, Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek and a book about Chernobyl that was made into a film, uh, I guess, sort of John Voight, Jason Robards. 
I've had a number of other books that have been optioned for films. Uh, the most promising of those was uh, Mark Twain Remembers. I, I love the story. A book about Mark Twain's slavery and boxing that was optioned first by Steven Spielberg and then by Clint Eastwood, Ron Harwood, who run an Academy Award for The Pianist uh, and also wrote The Dresser wrote a screenplay, and then it was never picked up. So maybe somebody will make it, maybe not. I've had a half a dozen other books that have been optioned, uh, but those are the two that have been on the big screen so far. I want to say this. Uh, you gave me a copy of Mark Twain Remembers. You, you, you inscribed it to me, and I let someone borrow it, and of course they never gave it back. Well, I'll bring a new one. I, that, I have I, some extra a, I really enjoyed that book. Okay, uh, let's see the next question here. Roger, oh my eyes. Roger W. sixty three asks: Is there any fight you've missed that you were truly devastated to miss out on? Missed being in attendance or missed watching? I, that's the question. You can take that's, it as yeah. you want. Um, I, I would say in attendance. Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking. Uh, I mean, you, you can't go to every fight. Uh, if there's a... Well, of course, the, the, there are fights, like, for example, before I got into boxing, there were great fights, but I just it wasn't a position to go to them. Like, you know, Leonard Hearns won, uh, Ali Frazier three. I was actually at, as a fan, Ali Frazier won at Madison Square Garden. The fight was since my first year out of law school, clerking for a federal judge. I read in the New York Times that these two guys were going to fight at Madison Square Garden. I immediately rode away for tickets. That's what you did in those days. There was no internet. And in those days, they really sold tickets to the public for big fights. So I sent in a check for $40, got two mezzanine tickets, <laughs> and I was there at Alley Frazier 1 which is the best fight I've ever seen. Give us, give us, can you, can you give, just, just, can you give us just a quick snippet of what it was like that night, what you saw, what was the vibe, what was the energy? It was, when, when those two men walked down the aisle to the ring, Ali in his red robe, Frazier in his green and gold brocade, and of course you had the slope wafting up, you know, which gave it that sort of ethereal look. Uh, there was an electricity that I've never seen in an arena before. Uh, there are two other times when I've been in an arena where I personally felt an emotional investment that, uh, that I, I was, my hand was shaking so much I could hardly write and read my writing. Uh, one of them was the first fight between Jermaine Taylor and Bernard Hopkins. Oh, what a... Oh. I was very emotionally involved in that fight with Jermaine. Uh, I had been in Jermaine's dressing room before the fight. Uh, obviously, you had all the, the, the tension and story plots between Lou DeBell and Bernard Hopkins. That, that's my favorite picture of Lou ever, is when, when he's jumping in a, yes. that's a, I mean, amazing yeah. night. And... Um, that that was an incredibly emotional moment for me. And similarly, when Lennox Lewis and Mike Tyson mm. fought in Memphis, I'd gotten quite close to Lennox by then. And uh, that was a particularly memorable moment for me. 
being at ringside uh, in terms of just the, the tension involved, the, the excitement. Those those three fights, what the one where I was just a fan, one where I'd been in the fighters' dressing room, you know, one you know, where I knew both fighters. In fact, ironically, when I started writing the Black Lights in nineteen eighty three, October of eighty three, it would have been. Uh, the first two people I met were Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton. Well, and they said to me, "If you're going to write about boxing, you have to talk to Customata." Of course. So they arranged for me to go up and spend a weekend at the farmhouse in Catskill, where Cus was living with a just turned seventeen-year-old young man named Mike Tyson. So I met Mike before he was Mike, Mike Tyson. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's been an interesting journey. Sure has. Uh, I think we have one more question here. And the last one is Harry Waters asks, how does this heavyweight division compare to ones of yesteryear? Depends on which yesteryear. I mean, is, 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 I mean, right now to my way of thinking, Tyson Fury is the best fighter, best heavyweight in the world. I would rank, you know, if you had a round robin where the best heavyweights could all fight each other. I'd have to say Tyson would come in first, uh, Deontay Wilder second. I just don't think Usyk could take his power. Uh, I'd rate Fury and Wilder one, two. Uh, Usyk probably number three. Uh, after that, I just don't know. I mean, Anthony Joshua is not the fighter he was when he beat Vladimir Klitschko. Uh, you know, when a fighter goes through an experience like that, and that was an enthralling fight. You you had a, a exciting fight, 90,000 screaming fans. Anthony, you know, was hurt badly, got off the canvas to win. And when a fighter goes through that, one of several things happens. Either it makes him stronger because he knows I've done it, I can survive and win, or... He's never the same fighter again because he's hurt and he doesn't have the same self-belief, which is what happened to Michael Grant. Michael climbed off the canvas from two first-round knockdowns to beat Andrew Galata, but he was never the same fighter again. And since the Klitschko fight, Anthony has gone downhill as a fighter. So I don't know where he is now. Also, I have to say, Usyk struggled against Chaz Witherspoon. Uh... He struggled. Who was his second pro fight? Because he was Chisora. Derek Chisora. He struggled against Chisora. So I don't know how much of Usyk, Joshua, was Usyk looking very good and how much of it was, was AJ struggling. So, you know, I'd, look, I'd, I'd love to see uh, AJ, uh, you know, in, in, a, in some good fights, competitive. I'd like to see more of Andy Ruiz if he's seriously rededicated to the sport. So, is this heavyweight division superior to what it was when the heavyweight champions were uh, Franz Botha, Cruz Selden, and Oliver McCall? Yeah, the white certainly belt. is. But can we compare this with Ali Foreman and Frazier? No. Boxing goes in cycles. Uh, but I do think Tyson Fury is a very good fighter. And Deontay Wilder is a very formidable heavyweight. You know, you can say, well, his boxing skills are poor. Yeah, his boxing skills are poor. 
but he has that hellacious punch that uh, really only Tyson Fury has been able to take so far. Uh, he takes a good beating, and I don't mean that facetiously. He gets hit too much, but he has a lot of heart. He keeps coming, and uh, I'd have to rate him number two. I think either of those fighters would be competitive, interesting matchups in any fighter in history, although I don't think they would have beaten the best historically. Well, I'll tell you this. There's a saying that says boxing goes the way of the heavyweight. And right now it, it is interesting. There are a lot of interesting heavyweights out there. And uh, again, whether I agree with you or don't agree with you, it's, uh, it's great to have your take on it. And I think it's uh, a very uh, educated assessment of what's out there. So listen, thank you for coming on with us. Um, we, uh, we have to get going. I know we could talk all day. We do sometimes. And we do. And we do. We do often. Um, but thank you for taking your time and, and for, for being on the podcast with us. Um, I do want to let the fans know, um, again, this will probably come out next week. So, but we're here in New York ahead of, uh, Serrano Cruz. And then next week we're going to be at Nottingham for, uh, uh, Mauricio Lara uh, and um, Lee Wood, which I mean, I think this is a great fight. So I do think there are a lot of great fights to come out there. We're staring down a big 2023. So to the fans, thank you. And thank you, Thomas Hauser. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>